Well, 16 years in the NFL, ranked number two currently for the most career receiving yards and inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2018, wide receiver Terrell Owens made a name for himself in football with his talent. And if you don't know T.O., you also don't know that he made a name for himself because of all the ways in which he celebrated that talent whenever he scored. You can look that up on YouTube if you like later, but there are videos of him taking a nap in the end zone, cheering with pom-poms after he celebrated a touchdown. At one time, he actually pulled a Sharpie out of his sock and signed the ball that he scored with and tossed it into the stands. In his own words, T.O. loved him some him. But Mr. Owens speaks a little bit more than he knows when he yells that phrase into the camera on the sidelines, jacked up on adrenaline and intoxicated by his own self-importance. You see, Mr. Owens is saying something that's not just his mantra. In that one phrase, he is echoing the slogan of broken image bearers. I love me some me. He is joining the chorus of history and repeating the language of sin-drunk humanity. He is reciting the words of our Selfish hearts. I love me some me. You see, this morning we're going to continue our love unfiltered series in the famous love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. And last week when we were in this series, we let God cut open our hearts and diagnose the pride that infects all of us, prescribing the only medicine that could cure us, that could save us, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel itself. This good news, this gospel, confronts our pride with Christ's humility. But this morning, instead of prepping for the operating room and being wheeled into surgery, I'm asking you to step into the house of mirrors that we have built for ourselves. To step into a house of mirrors with the God who brought a hammer. To smash our selfish love with his selfless love and free us from the intoxicating experience of being drunk on ourselves. This morning, we look at self-centeredness and its anti-love way of life. It's anti-gospel posture, the way it imprisons us in a jail cell of self. And this morning, even as I step in, I realize that some of you had come into the space suffocating from the fears and anxieties of this past week. Some of you come into this space and, and you have yet to get your head above water since the beginning of this pandemic. Some of you have been treading water and it's getting exhausting. And so this morning... I want to tell you that there is rest in Jesus. This morning, I want to tell you that there is oxygen in the gospel. This morning, I want to tell you that there is hope among the people of God, which is why we turn to the word of God, the only thing that can give us oxygen, even as we suffocate from the life outside. So we're going to step into God's word, and we're actually going to read the entire passage just like we did the past couple of weeks. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13, so you can turn there in your Bible or scroll. If you're joining us online, I would encourage you, pull out your Bibles and participate with us, 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to ask you to stand if you're able as we read from God's word. So we're going to read this whole passage before we laser focus on the selfless characteristic of love. Now, if you're there, say you're there. Just want to make sure. I don't want to jump ahead of anybody. 1 Corinthians 13, you ready? If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is God's word. You may be seated. Love does not dishonor others, and love is not self-seeking. That's where we're at this morning in our series on love, unfiltered. And so when we read that, when we hear that, it must mean that love honors others and that love seeks the good of others. But like we do here at TVC, I want to step into the context of this letter and explain kind of why in the world Paul is even saying these kinds of things. They're not just arbitrary. Because that is not what the Corinthian church was proving by their life as a community. The Corinthian church, as, as a, a community, as a people, were not loving each other. They, like us, loved them some them. Like many of us, the people that Paul is writing this letter to were plagued not just with pride, but with a self-centered view of the world. They, like all of us, to one degree or another, whether we would say this or not, have planted both feet firmly at the center of the universe and declared that the earth does not revolve around the sun, or the sun does not revolve around the earth. I feel like Galileo now making things up, that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but that we are at the center of that universe, that their ego is at the center of that universe. And they did this in a number of different ways. So I'm going to go through it really quickly so that you can get the context of what we're getting at here. Because one of the examples that they had in this letter is that they didn't care about the conscience of their siblings in the faith. What I mean by that is actually in 1 Corinthians 8, they talk about eating food sacrificed to idols. What the Corinthians were doing is that they were exercising their newfound quote-unquote freedom and eating whatever they wanted. Even if their partners in Christ were still struggling to figure out how to live life in the cultural pantheon that Jesus saved them from. Or another time when it came time to, to gather and remember the sacrifice of Jesus by eating together, by breaking bread and drinking wine together, making visible the sacrifice of Jesus' body and blood, some of the Corinthians couldn't even see past themselves. What I mean by that is that some of them were very wealthy. And so they had these flexible schedules that, that allowed them to kind of take time off and go to this banquet and get there early. And even while they were waiting, their patience would run thin. So they would actually go ahead and rush and, and eat the dinner even as the day laborers among them, their brothers and sisters in Christ, had to sneak in the back and get to the atrium and sit separated from their family in Christ because they couldn't get there fast enough. Separated by more than just a banquet room. On other occasions during worship, the Corinthian, some of the Corinthians would interrupt people with special revelations that just couldn't wait. And then they wouldn't stop talking even though God's Spirit had given gifts to all of the community and they all had important contributions to make. At some point, they even made the gift of tongues a barometer of spirituality, a litmus test of maturity, right? This, this gift that, that, that didn't really even matter if people understood what you were saying so long as you were seen as super spiritual, speaking some hard-to-understand 
language. The Corinthian church was infiltrated by the tentacles of pride, yes, but it was also disoriented by self-centered mirrors turned in on themselves. Mirrors that reflected their own image rather than windows that opened their eyes to Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to this community, not because they needed to be taken down a peg, and not because they, they, they had to be berated about how self-centered they were, but because the gospel has mirror-shattering capabilities. Because the love of Jesus in the gospel has the power to turn mirrors into windows. The love of Jesus that does not dishonor others, the love of Jesus that is not self-seeking, turns us away from ourselves and towards the God who made us. And that's the love we're looking at this morning. But in order to do that accurately, well, we have to have our view recalibrated, which is why we go to the Bible instead of just my ideas, right? We need to see things accurately. We have to make sure we have a correct view, not just of ourselves, but a correct view of Jesus, allowing him to truly define what love is. And then that recalibration here is what I'm calling us to this morning. This is my main idea, my main point. If you're writing notes, go ahead and take this down. What I'm calling us to this morning is to reject the mission of self and pursue the mission of God. Reject the mission of self and pursue the mission of God. Reject the priority of self and all that comes with it. The desire to center self and decenter others. The temptation to use people as objects or treat people as less than human. The intoxication of me, myself, and I. Reject the mission of self and pursue the mission of God. Pursue the glory of God and all that comes with it. The desire to center God and in so doing to love others. The new desire he has given each of us as new creations in Christ to treat people as image bearers. The joy of being caught up with who God is and how much he loves us. Reject the mission of self. Pursue the mission of God. But in order to call us to that rejection and that pursuit this morning, I want us to look at the passage that gives us a pretty sharp contrast. There's a contrast between true love and between selfish love. And so we're going to contrast selfish hearts with selfless love this morning. That's how we're going to track through this passage and through the ways that it talks about love. Reject the mission of self, pursue the mission of God, and to see that we're contrasting selfish hearts with selfless love. And that contrast will give us that recalibrated, correct view of ourselves, that recalibrated and correct view of Jesus so we can hear his call to pursue him, to be shaped by the gospel, a selfless gospel. Now, usually, I'm a, uh, what you might call a dessert-first kind of person. You might have noticed that. And, but this morning, we're going to be responsible, and we're going to start with our vegetables. We're going to start with the bad news, and then we're going to get to Jesus. You see where I'm going with this? I don't even know how, how my family lives with me, how Jocelyn gets all of us, including this adult human, to eat salad, but that's how we're going to start. Okay, the bad news, we're starting with salad, which is good for us to receive as we submit to God's undistorted and compassionate view of us as we truly are. So here is the bad news. See, the difficult thing about all of this, about trying to grapple with self-centered hearts and our self-centered tendencies is that being so in love with ourselves and being so used to imagining ourselves at the center of the universe, we have a hard time seeing past ourselves. I know I need help to do that. We have a hard time picking up apart what it means to be self-centered and what it means to just to care for ourselves. 
to be a good steward of all that God has given us. In other words, we have a hard time distinguishing between the good and right truth that we need to put on our own oxygen mask before we help others do the same, and the difficult reality that sometimes we step into the room and suck up all of the oxygen for ourselves. And the society we live in, let me tell you, does not help. In her book, Enough About Me, Finding Lasting Joy in the Age of Self, Jen Oshman correctly identifies the problem in society as a whole as a consecration of self. Calling everything that promotes or elevates self as good, as sacred, as holy. From popular culture to our country's fascination with liberty to university policies to the advertisements we have to endure on YouTube or even the basic Hulu package. Everyone is saying that you define you. In Oshman's words, we live in the era of the deified self. Where everyone makes their own meaning and operates like their own God. Not only do I love me some me, but everybody around me tells me to just do you, man. You do you, boo-boo. And society will build itself around how you have defined your humanity. We all bow at the altar of self, and it just it feels good because constructing our own reality rather than submitting to the one who designed actual reality feels so freeing. We live in the age of selfies and self-help, self actualization. The age where many of us have what a comedian Brian Regan calls a me monster living inside of you. Just waiting for someone to stop talking and finish their story so that you can tell a better story, right? You, me. You, me. You see the difference? That's how we tell our stories sometimes. You do you, I'll do me, and we'll see who's better. Self-centered, selfish, Our hearts are not neutral. They are bent inwards. They are bent away from the God who made us. And it distorts who we are at our core. It disintegrates the self that we love so much and the community that we were made for. The problem of selfish hearts is so bad that actually Paul includes it in a list of warnings about the last days in 2 Timothy 3. I'll read it off the screen Paul says this, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be, number one, lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Did you catch the beginning of that list? The very first thing that Paul warns about is being lovers of themselves. And TVC, that is who we are apart from Christ. And it's killing us. The me monster that lives in each of us is not just waiting for the next story to one-up. It lurks and schemes and plans homicide because it is sin. And sin is never content to just live side by side with us. Like the 90s show Pinky and the Brain said, sin is always out to take over the world, to take over us, to kill us. And sin uses selfish hearts, self-centeredness as one of its weapons to do this. So the question is, how do we identify when sin is weaponizing our selfish hearts? Well, that's where our text comes in. Because the first symptom of this weaponization might surprise you. Our text this morning actually starts in an unexpected place. It starts with dishonor, which 
actually may or may not surprise you. Some of you in this room actually come from a high honor shame culture. So this line makes a little bit more sense. But if you don't, these cultures, these high honor shame cultures, they set the honor of the family or the community or even sometimes the honor of the self above every single ideal. Shame is the highest disgrace and it is enforced regularly and sometimes even violently. In some cultures, honor and shame dictates what job you can have, who you can marry, where you can live. And the culture of Corinth is just like that. It trades in the currency of honor and shame. So to say that love does not dishonor others is to say that love does not behave in shameful ways. Or to make it positive, love engages with everyone appropriately, with love and compassion and respect and care for who they are. As one commentator puts it, love does not elbow its way into conversations, worship services, or public institutions in a disruptive, discourteous, attention-seeking way. Jesus did not make a virtue of nonconformity. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a time when the way that a society functions does not align with God and his word. The difference is the judgment that that is happening is based on God and his word, not our preferences, not our preconceived ideas of the way life should be lived, not our prejudices. And it's at those times that we follow the word of God into the temple as he is the one that turns the tables over. That's not what I'm talking about here when I'm talking about honor, shame, and polite company. What I'm talking about here is how selfish hearts take the freedom that we have in Jesus, this new life that he has given us, and subtly manipulate those realities into spiritual excuses to be rude, to ignore respectful and considerate behavior with someone. So for the Corinthians, this showed up in those worship services and that communion, right? They, they interrupt and monopolize time for their self-exaltation. They ignore the needs of others and eat before anyone, everyone had come to the table. But that's not what gospel love does. Gospel love values the family of God way too much to behave in disrespectful and inconsiderate ways. To, to, you see, to really understand what God is doing in the church among his people and how grace infuses every aspect of our lives as a community, we have to come to grips with the fact that in the church there is a new kind of society. A society that decenters self, that downgrades the self from deity and honors others above self. But now I'm sneaking in bites of cake before we finish our vegetables. So, back to the bad news. Selfish hearts dishonor others. And so the question for us this morning is, how do we do the same in this day and age? What does that look like in our community? How do we elevate self in things like conversations or maybe even in our actions? How do we not think about others and only think about ourselves and our preferences and the way that we think this group should be run or that program should be created or brought back or whatever the case may be. Now, TVC, it is good and right to have passions and callings that the Lord brings you into, into this space. I want that. I want to know what those are. They are God-given. But what we have to be careful of is that they should never, ever be exercised or explored at the expense of our siblings in the faith. Because the problem with selfish hearts is not just that selfish hearts dishonor others on the mission of self. The problem is also that fundamentally selfish hearts love themselves. The love that should be external and outward focused is bent in on itself. And just like eating too much dessert can make you sick, loving self inappropriately will also make you sin sick. Notice that I said loving self inappropriately. 
right? Because the call to reject the mission of self is not to reject the self completely, right? It is not to hate yourself because ironically, even in that, it's his own form of pride and self-centeredness in that hate. The call to reject the mission of self is the call of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, where he tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. It is not to love yourself less, but to love others more. Or in the words of 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love is not self-seeking. The phrase that Paul uses here carries it with it this idea of insisting on your own way, insisting on your own advantage. It elevates self-interest and sees people as objects to be acquired, to be used, to be leveraged, to stand on top of in the pursuit of self. It's the, this kind of self-love that devolves love's pursuit of the other into something that, that wants to possess, to collect on your way on, up the food chain, to, to dominate. The Corinthians struggled with this left and right, and in this community, to add, add to the mix the danger of, of special knowledge that they wrestled about, well, the Corinthians had redefined their relationships with each other as objects to master rather than people to value. Selfish hearts tend to be captivated by self-gain and self-worth, by reputation, by image, by, by, by getting all of the credit and having the best stories to tell at parties, but by never considering how your actions, might, your words might impact others by being indifferent to how others might feel. Selfish hearts love themselves, and it, and it comes out like Jerry Bridges in his book on Respectable Sins says, in bold and subtle ways. Right? In bold ways, I don't care what people think about me. But it also comes out in subtle ways. Well, I, I do care what people think about me, so I've got to be a little bit sneakier about the way that I am selfish. It comes out, I'll confess, when I correct my children, not for their good or for their, their growth, that they might grow, but because they impose on my alone time. Because I need some quiet after work and they're making too much noise. Maybe TVC, it imposes for you when you hear someone's opinion, but you don't actually want to hear it. You just want them to finish so that you can say yours. It comes out for me when my wife asks me to help her with something, and I, and I just struggle to say yes because I had my day planned out, and this just gets in the way. She didn't see my schedule. TVC, maybe this comes out for you when you actually or maybe subconsciously think that what you have going on is more important than what someone else has going on, even though they're busy and you decide to ask them for time away from the things because, because your stuff is more important than their stuff. There's no time to examine each and every way, nuanced way that selfishness and self-centeredness comes out of your heart. Even in this room, how many of us struggle with it? What I can say is that no matter what it looks like, whether bold or subtle, we all struggle with selfish hearts. And we all have been doing that our whole lives. In that same book I quoted earlier, Enough About Me, Jen Oshman has this. She diagnoses the danger when she writes this. She says, we are destroying ourselves by trying to follow ourselves. Having an accurate view of ourselves is not just seeing how bad the problem is, but, but what it's doing to us. You see, don't you feel it? Aren't you, aren't you tired? I know I am. Promoting myself and looking out for number one, always trying to top everyone around me, whether on social media or in conversation, it's exhausting. And the worst part about it is it doesn't even keep its promises. Years ago, a friend of mine went to a conference, him and his wife, and 
at this conference, they, they met some new people and they went out to dinner with these people and they realized around the dinner table as they were talking about what they do and, and, and what they do for fun and stuff like that, that they were with people that had more money than they had ever seen in their lives. And as they got to know them better, they found out they had houses in multiple zip codes, boats all over the world, but that they were exhausted. That they had been pretending for so long and they had been crushed under the weight of their anxiety that, that their debt to manage their lifestyle had built a jail cell around them. That their marriages were hanging on by a thread and their families were marked by, by broken relationships. They had, they had turned into insomniacs because they were unable to sleep because every time they tried to sleep, the anxiety woke up inside of them. Now when I tell you that, I say that it's, this is not a symptom of having money. Having money doesn't mean that you're selfish. What I'm trying to point out is that for them, in the pursuit of the good life and getting all that they could get their hands on and making sure that they looked out for number one, when they, when they, when they got there, there wasn't more happiness to be had. There wasn't more importance. There wasn't more freedom. It was empty. The problem is not having money. The problem is that we don't all get the gift of seeing that for ourselves, that we don't all have enough money to see that it doesn't satisfy that pursuing self and focused on self doesn't satisfy. And so we continue to buy into the lie that we are the ones who define reality, that we are all that matters, and we end up destroying ourselves by trying to follow ourselves. By God's grace, God's word actually does give us the gift of seeing this if we have eyes to see. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11 is this gift from God for us to see this before we destroy ourselves. In this passage, a king explains his pursuit of self like this. He says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and in all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless." a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. The Bible opens up our eyes to show us that the more you pursue self, the more you destroy yourself, and it doesn't give you what it promises. Selfish hearts dishonor others. Selfish hearts love themselves. But at this point, you might be going, okay, Eric, okay, I've got some idea, but what in the world does that mean? Well, I'll get really practical here based off of that book that I mentioned earlier, Respectable Sins. In it, it talks about the selfish nature coming out in all kinds of ways. And I've talked about this a little bit already, but, but consider how you participate in conversations. Consider how you engage someone that's having a conversation with you. Are you actually listening? Actively listening and seeking to connect? Or are you just waiting for an opportunity to, to tell your story? I don't know about you, but sometimes manipulating the conversation to a topic where we can refocus the limelight on ourselves and our interest, tell that story or talk about that achievement that I had, just figuring out a way to say it. Another example, a selfish nature can come out in both public and private ways, and this is one that was um, hard for me to write, so even slight confession time. The question is, what do our lives look like when we leave our house and come back home? 
Are we on our best behavior in the outside world, but once we get home, we explicitly or maybe even just implicitly focus on us instead of our families? Selfish, only concerned with our interests. Again, I had a long day. No, I can't do the dishes. You've been with the kids? I did. Nope, not my problem. What would our families say if we asked them? Jesus calls us to reject the mission of self because in the end, he knows that selfish hearts destroy themselves. Jesus calls us to reject the false promises of self, to reject the pursuit of me and pursue the mission of God, a mission that is marked by love, a mission that reached out to us before we can even reach out to him. And TVC, here is the gospel contrast. I promised you we had our vegetables and now we get to eat cake. Because much like the taste of vegetables side by side with the taste of dessert, selfless love is the direct opposite of selfish hearts. It stands not just on the other side, but it's fundamentally opposed to the self-centered ways that are killing us. You see, selfless love is not self-centered, but God-centered. And it rejects the societal truth that the highest good is to find ourselves. Selfless love instead declares that the highest good is to be captivated by God and his love for us. Selfless love can say this because of what selfless love did. Philippians 2, 3 through 5 puts it like this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Value others above yourself. Instead of seeking yourself and your own interest, everyone should look to the interest of others. But why? Because of Jesus. The gospel is the definition of selfless love. The message of the God who made everything, who is first and foremost a father above all else, went on a rescue mission to fix his family that was broken by sin. The God who came to earth as a man and gave up his access, his use of his supernatural attributes so that he could demonstrate his love by making a way back to himself. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of selfless love, that this same God who we rejected and rebelled against, the same God that we have usurped with our selfish desire to define life and reality for ourselves, this same God who knew the destructive nature of our sin, of our self-centeredness, refused to let us implode on ourselves. He came to earth and he lived a selfless life, looking out for the good of others everywhere he went. One writer says, love is always on the prowl to see how it can do good to others. That is how Jesus lived his life. All the way to the end when he made the ultimate sacrifice for others, for us, for you, for me, by giving his life on a cross. A cross where he took on himself every single sin, every selfish thought and act we've ever had, every dishonorable and shameful way that we treated others, every scenario where we insisted on our own way, he took it all on himself and took the good and right and just punishment for that sin on himself. At the cross, our need to promote and elevate ourselves in order to mean something, in order to be someone, in order to matter, was met by the God who loves us and says more than any other moment, says in that very moment that we meant everything to him. We are important and we matter because we are made in his image and because he loves us. He's the one that gets to tell us that. 
There is something that he has marked us all with, and even sin couldn't erase it, a built-in permanent worth and dignity. And no matter how much we try to write or rewrite meaning into our lives, what we actually needed was someone who could look at us and can show us that he already wrote it into our hearts. We needed someone who would clear the grime from our hearts, would, would clear the stone from around our souls and show us that sin that kills us does not get to determine us, does not get to define us. Only the creator, a father who fights for his family to bring his children home, gets to determine that. That is selfless love. Selfless love that honors others, that values others above itself. That 1 Corinthians 10, 24 says, does not seek its own good, but the good of others. That's what Jesus did when he came to earth, when he gave up his rights for us. This is the truest expression of love, and this is the love that we are called to out of that gospel, TVC. Romans 5.5 tells us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And in doing that, God has decentered us, and it is a grace. Like John the Baptist said about Jesus, he must become greater, I must become less. Jesus is at the center now. And with Jesus at the center, he comes with all of who he is, including his selfless love that affects and disinfects every part of our being from the selfish hearts we have entertained for so long. So you see, the very act of becoming a Christian is the acceptance of a different center to our lives. It is to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because selfless love does not just honor others. Selfless love loves others. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 1 through through 2, he says this, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, we need to grasp the love of Christ and then walk the love of Christ out in our daily lives. And that requires humility, sacrifice, and a selfless view of the world. Excuse me. It requires us to reject being indifferent to the needs of others and expecting others to meet our needs, but working at the same time to balance well our needs with others' needs, all in the context of love. It requires us to become the servant of all, like our Savior did in Mark 10, 45. If you remember, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Selfish and self-centered is not the way of God's kingdom. It's not the way of Jesus. And we have to remember that. Because selfishness, self-centeredness hinders and restricts our ability to live out the mission of God. When we are selfish, we don't, we don't sacrifice for others. When we are selfish, we don't serve others. We turn in on ourselves. We're not hospitable or generous with our lives and our resources for others. When we are selfish, we not only miss out on the mission of God, we easily become enemies to the mission of God. Which is why we have to cling to the gratitude that selfish and self-centered is not just not the way of the kingdom and just not just the, not the way of Jesus, but it's also not the way of God's gospel. It is not the way he treated us. He treated us way better than we deserve and demonstrated his selfless love in the cross. And by his resurrection and by the spirit of God, we are able to come back to life and live lives enjoying and communicating that selfless love. Which is why the call this morning is not just to reject the mission of self, but to pursue the mission of God. A mission that requires, first and foremost, that we would receive before we do. 
A mission that requires us to acknowledge that we are not at the center of the universe, that he is, and that it is good and right that he be at the center of the universe because he can hold the weight of the center and still be selfless, still be loving, still love me and you and all who come to him in humility. Everyone that he adopts into his family, making children out of orphans, making friends out of enemies. If you see, familia, my brothers and my sisters, people of God, this morning is not a sledgehammer to tell you, to tell us how selfish we are, how terrible we are and how much we need to change. This morning is a bomb, a relief, a comfort. It's rest that the only cure for our selfish hearts is his selfless love. You don't need to do anything. He already did everything. In his commentary, one pastor writes this when he connects the problem of selfish hearts to God's solution. He says, cure selfishness and you plant a garden of Eden. The life-altering reality of the gospel is that God himself is making everything right again. That he is undoing all of the bad things and making all things good again. He is planting gardens of Eden all over creation by curing the selfishness that is killing us, curing it with his selfless love. Now, you might know these gardens of Eden by another name. They are his local churches. This is not just some general reality to be accepted either. It is a specific reality to be lived out among the people of God and through the people of God. Communities should experience the joy and beauty of Eden not in order to, to find significance, but because we already have found significance and meaning and purpose in Jesus. We've already found love. We should be able to look at our calendars and our bank accounts and see how God has transformed our priorities from self to savior. Our lives should be marked by consideration of others, even in the small thank yous at a restaurant and at the cash register. He is even now cultivating hearts of compassion among us that, that give sacrificially, that demonstrate their compassion by giving time and money and skills for others. He is redefining our time as his time and using it for the sake of others. The truth of the matter is that, TVC, the truth of the matter is that for Christians, even and especially when it comes to things that we can entirely justifiably enjoy, our freedom in Christ must always be exercised in loving consideration of others. Our happiness never eclipses or supersedes the life of my siblings in Christ because the comfort of heaven never eclipsed or superseded Jesus' sacrifice for me, for you. This is the gospel, and it is the gospel that calls us to reject the mission of self and pursue the mission of God because in the gospel, Jesus honored others above himself. In the gospel, selfless love came to earth for our sake, became poor for our sake, poured itself out into our hearts for the sake of others. Died on the cross, humbled himself to death on a cross for our sake and for the sake of others. And so my prayer is that the selfless love of Jesus in the gospel would, would not only soothe our sin-sick hearts this morning as it should and provide the cure, but continue to rid us of our selfish hearts and cultivate in us as a community hearts of love for God and love for others. Love that does not dishonor others. Love that is not self-seeking. Love that loves. And so in order to do that, it's not just, again, something you do. It's something we receive. So at this time, I would ask that we 
bow in prayer together and pray that Jesus might make it so. Would you pray with me? Jesus, this morning we pray because we know how dependent we are. We pray because we know that we have not pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps. I mean, we couldn't. Sin has weighed us down and we were not strong enough. We realize, even now this morning, that we cannot occupy the center of our lives. It, it is, it's crushing us. In the words of the song we're about to sing, we, we recognize that our sin is greater, but this morning we also recognize and declare that your love is greater. Our sin is great and your love is greater. Your name is powerful. Your name is beautiful and nothing compares to you. This morning we are grateful for what you have done for us in the gospel. We are grateful for what you have done to us in the gospel. How you have poured out your love in our hearts by the spirit and we ask that you would continue to rid us of the selfishness that is chipping away at our humanity. Would you make this community into a garden of Eden here in Streamwood? that reflects the life-changing work of the gospel here and now, would you help us to rest in your selfless love? It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.